The first scripture reading is from the first book of Kings, and that's chapter 11, verses 1 to 13, which is on page 349 of your Bibles. Solomon's Wives. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edenites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burnt incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I've commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. I will not tear the, the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Second scripture reading is also from chapter 11, 1 Kings, but uh, it's verses 26 to 43, and it starts on page 350. Jeroboam rebels against Solomon. Also, Jeroboam, son of Nabat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zerida, and his mother was a widow named Zeruah. Here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the terraces, and he had filled in the gap in the wall in the city of David his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Hahijah, 
the prophet of Shiloh met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces of, your, of yourself, for that is what the Lord God of Israel says, See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hands and give you ten tribes. For the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Shemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David Solomon's father did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out, out of Solomon's hands. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, and who obeyed my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. I will, give you one tri I will give one tribe to his son, so that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all your heart de desires. You will be king over Israel. Uh, if you do whatever I command you, and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as one I built for David and I will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam but Jeroboam fled to Egypt to Shishak the king and stayed there until Solomon's death. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the Annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem all, over all Israel for 40 years. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, David. Do keep that open. Um, going to be uh, we're going to be in uh, this chapter uh, this morning together. I'm going to jump around a little bit, so um, it might be helpful to keep it open so you can see which verse I'm kind of referring to uh, when. Um, and with that in mind, let me then uh, pray uh, for us as we uh, turn to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we uh, pray uh, that as we, uh, as we read and learn from Solomon, uh, that we would uh, have grace and humility to examine our own hearts um, but as we see Solomon, might we also in him see more clearly the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the one who never failed, uh, who loved you with an unrelenting love, 
and who keeps his people safe forever. And so please encourage us uh, as well as challenge us this morning, we pray. Amen. Uh, where do you expect to be in 20 years' time? Maybe you think, oh, might have left school, um, maybe um, in a job. Some of you might be thinking, oh, I'll pay the mortgage off <laughs> 20 years, maybe only just. Uh, maybe some thinking, oh, you're retirements, sitting in the garden, listening to the cricket, whatever uh, you dream of for retirement. Uh, maybe some of you here are thinking, Dave, in 20 years' time, I expect to be with the Lord in glory. Well, uh, yeah, fair enough. I mean, uh, where, where do you expect to be in uh, 20 years? Where do you expect to see yourself spiritually in 20 years? Uh, the Christian life is uh, being compared to a marathon and not a sprint. And today's passage is a warning against spiritual slide, drifting slowly away from the Lord. It's a sad warning to us. Uh, we've been learning this in, in our growth groups, our small groups here at Trinity in James, uh, James 4. Uh, we're told as a warning to those who try to live in both friendship with the world and friendship with God, a divided heart. We read, James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And how true that is in Solomon's life. I, I, I don't think we need to know the details of Hugh Edwards' personal life, his private life, but I suspect it's followed a very tragically familiar path. You know, long absences away from family and home, struggling with stress, demanding job, depression, or the mental health, stumbling across indecent images online, being drawn back to that more and more, giving away to dating sites where a more gratifying sexual encounters can be had, it is a tragic story of drift, isn't it, from uh, marriage, exposure, shame, breakdown kind of comes. Drift. And spiritual drift, friends, is much, much more serious, isn't it? Uh, the Puritans, uh, they compared uh, this to a little bit like having a, a nest of, uh, of little snakes, baby snakes, that you just ignore, wriggling away there in their nest. But what happens to those baby snakes? They become, guess what, big snakes, don't they? Deadly snakes. And in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, we come to the end of Solomon's reign. The, the chapter ends with his death. Uh, he's buried in, in Solomon. Uh, we, we're reminded through uh, the 1 Kings that here we see a, uh, the reign of really quite an extraordinary king, a king whom God used in, in a mighty way uh, to, to build the temple, to display his glory and his blessing. So back in chapter 10, uh, verse 23, we read this of Solomon. Uh, king Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the kings, other kings of the earth. The whole world saw audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. And yet, the story a chapter later ends where it does. 
And of course, if you've been with us uh, here at Trinity as we've been looking at these chapters, you will know that this doesn't come out of the blue. The writer's been preparing us for this. He wants us to see and understand what are the reasons why even a great man like Solomon could come crashing down in the way that he does. He drops lots of hints that not everything is right. He's a man who enjoyed huge blessing from God uh, in huge measure in his life, and yet his heart turns away from the Lord his God. Now, uh, Nehemiah, uh, writing uh, years later, rebuked the people then in Jerusalem for following Solomon's sin. Uh, he said to those in Jerusalem then, uh, among the many nations there was no king like him, King Solomon. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into the sin by foreign women. And look, uh, here in this, in this kind of situation, we, we, as, as Nehemiah is looking at the people, he said, look, we've got to learn from Solomon, and I take it that we need to uh, as well. There is a warning here for us, but wonderfully, there's also an encouragement for us too. So firstly, we need to go through the uncomfortable process of hearing the warning. The warning of a divided heart. The warning of a divided heart. Let me read verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edenites, Sidonians, and Hittites. And as we run, the, the, the numbers are boggling, aren't they? I mean, you know, there's uh, 700 wives, and if that wasn't enough, there's 300 concubines. And we're meant to be shocked by that. We're meant to be shocked. Now, most of these marriages would have been for political alliances. That's how often uh, in that culture these things worked. Uh, the, the chapter, however, realize, it, it implies, though, that the real issue, though, isn't kind of what was going on in, uh, in uh, Solomon's cabinet office, nor even, interestingly, what was going on in Solomon's bedroom. Actually, it's what's going on in Solomon's heart that's the matter, verse 4. We read, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And remember, Solomon's the man who built God's temple. He's the one who prayed fervently before the Lord, leading all God's people to him. Uh, and we read verse 5, He followed Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Anamites. So Solomon did evils in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. So I'm sure he's still at the temple offering his sacrifices, but he found room in his heart to also go to the high places where, where you know, his, one of his wives has set up a, a, a temple or a shrine to their God, and well, he went with them and, and maybe made an offering there too. In, in two kings, we discovered that actually Solomon built uh, high places, these shrines, these little temples, these other gods all over Israel. And so verse 9, the consequence, the Lord became angry 
with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. His heart turned away. The God who had appeared to him twice. And, and, and those appearings were both a, a huge encouragement and a warning to him at the same time. To, to be devoted to the Lord, to keep his law and not turn away. And yet, he has done just that. And so God is angry with him. Now, a couple of things I'd like to pull, pull out for us from uh, this passage. Um, the first is about marriage. And the second is about old age. Uh, firstly, uh, about marriage. There's, there's a warning here for us about uh, those whom we are most closest to. Now, uh, God made marriage between one man and one woman for life. But the writer uh, leaves us to make our own conclusions about that and Solomon's many wives. But what he does tell us, verse 2, is, is not the quantity of the wives, but the origin, the, uh, the place these wives came from, verse 2. Uh, we're told that they were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods. So this isn't about their race, even their nationality, Primarily, it's about their religion. That's the problem. They worshipped other gods. Now, it might well have been that you know, Solomon was uh, hoping that you know, these, these wives would, would turn to his God. You know, like the Queen of Sheba, she came uh, to Jerusalem. To, to, she'd heard about the living God, Solomon's God and his reign, and, and worshipped uh, the Lord. Maybe he hoped that these wives would do the same. And uh, of course, tragically, some Christians have taken that same approach. They've married a non-Christian, uh, hoping that their spouse would do the same. Um, it's been rather awfully called flirty fishing. I mean, it is, it is not a wise thing to do. Is deep and godly thing. Oh, graciously, wonderfully, we do see uh, kind of uh, unbelieving spouses who come to the Lord. I was uh, with one of those just a couple of weeks ago, and it was uh, a great joy to see him come to faith. But tragically, often and more frequently, in my experience, the opposite happens that the Christian ends up worshipping what their spouse worships. Hello, uh, I, I rarely, sometimes see those who give up their faith um, as they uh, follow what their spouse worships, but more often they just get drawn into what they value and the, the aspirations of what they worship of, of that spouse. Not always, no. But it is a tragically familiar tale. A, a relationship that might make sense in worldly terms, well, it's for the Christian, it's folly. It's folly. And let Solomon be a warning to us. Now, I'm conscious that there are some here who, who for all sorts of different reasons, um, are married to uh, people who... Uh, either don't believe or who did believe and now no longer believe. 
And, um, and, and, and of course, there are, there are people in different circumstances here. And, um, and the important thing for our, us, the church, in this situation is, is of support and prayer for you in your marriage. Just as it is for those who are married to Christians. Because we influence those whom we're closest to, don't we, for good or for ill. So we need to be supporting people in their marriage. And I know that uh, for those who are married to a, uh, someone who doesn't believe, that can bring with it pain uh, and, and at times uh, hurt and confusion. But please be reassured as a church, we want to support you in your marriage. 1 Peter 3 uh, tells you what to do in that situation. He says to the wives there to press on in Christ. Uh, and we want to encourage you. And for, the, for those who are just, uh, all of us who are married here, whoever we're married to, we're to keep pressing on in Christ. Because if I don't guard my own walk with Christ, I will influence my wife. Uh, and that is a tragic thing too, isn't it? The influence of marriage and those closest to us. My spiritual drift will have a profound impact on others. So we're to think about marriage here, and there is a warning, isn't there? But secondly, we also like to just think about old age. Look again at verse 4. As Solomon grew old. Now, um, you know, speaking as one here who hasn't yet grown old. <laughs> no, uh, it is striking, isn't it, that uh, this is uh, a journey over time for Solomon, isn't it? We often think, don't we, that you know, it's the teenagers who are particularly vulnerable you know, to the temptations of this world, be led astray by friends. You know, but once you kind of you know, get through those teenage years into maturity, then, you're, then you've made it. You're okay. We don't have to worry so much. And it is true, isn't it, of course, that it's the older generation who are leaving church, but in, often in a good way. Um, but, uh, of course, Solomon is one of a number of people in the Bible who blow it in old age. And of course, we mustn't think that the devil goes into retirement when we go into retirement. It's a crazy idea. Of course, he'll continue to trip us up and to tempt us away in all sorts of different ways. I think that the sins of old age are, in many respects, no different from the sins of youth. They're both a snare, aren't they? And of course, this isn't just a warning for, for comp against complacency as we get older, but also a warning about drift in the middle age. So C.S. Lewis was right, wasn't he? He said, he said, the long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather for the devil. Because they are. Remember, this didn't just happen out of the blue. No, there's been this gradual shift in Solomon's heart down through the years. There's an African proverb, if you ignore the termites, they'll slowly take your house. Uh, and, and, and here, this is the issue going on in Solomon, isn't it? Back in chapter 3, verse 3, if you want to flick over, you can, but let me read it. Chapter 3, verse 3, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given to him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. 
You see, possibly even those places to the right God. We don't know, but certainly in the wrong place. And here this little compromise, unchecked, ignored, slowly eating away at his heart, well, it would lead him on a path uh, to destruction, a bit like uh, the, uh, trying to hit a ball uh, into a box or, or a, uh, hit a ball through a hoop, throw a ball through a hoop, whatever it might be, uh, or like using a, a compass, just a, a degree out in your bearing, and over a couple of miles, you'll be in completely the wrong place. Small compromises lead to big compromises. Faithful in the little things, and you'll be faithful in the big. That's how it works, isn't it? And over time, our sin can be exposed. And if it could happen to Solomon, I think it could happen to any of us, couldn't it? So we're to be warned, aren't we? Uh, Psalm 86 that I began the service with, written by David, Solomon's father. He prayed, teach me your way, Lord, that I might rely on your faithfulness. Keep me in your way. And to do that, he then prays, give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. So David's saying, look, teach me, teach me. And as you teach me, give me an undivided heart heart Lord one that is totally committed to God and and wonderfully God answered that prayer Uh, verse 4 again we read don't we uh, 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 that uh, Solomon whose heart had been turned away but not as his uh, as uh, it wasn't fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been and so here uh, Solomon's a warning for us isn't he yeah, and, and encouragement out of learning from that to pray, Lord, Lord, I want an undivided heart, one that is totally committed to you. Please give me that, Lord. But as well as a warning, Solomon is also a, an encouragement. There's an encouragement here for us of a promise-keeping God. The encouragement of a promise-keeping God. In verse 9, uh, we see that God becomes angry with Solomon and disciplines him. Uh, So verse 11, the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Uh, Solomon's divided heart would lead to a divided kingdom. And therefore, in in the verses that follow, verses 14 to 25, uh, adversaries are raised up like Hadad the Edomite and Rezon the son of uh, Eliada. Uh, And uh, and they are part of God's chastisements. Remember, as these people come, they're they're, they're to to flag up, not not all is well here. Uh, Far from it. But tragically, uh, from verse 26 to the end, we see that God uh, would tear the kingdom apart, uh, as he says through uh, the prophet Ahijah. Let me read verse 29. We'll pick up the story there. Uh, Ahijah, the prophet of Silo, met uh, him on the way. He met uh, Jeroboam. Jeroboam is uh, one of the adversaries that has been raised up by God. 
Uh, he met him along the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. So this cloak uh, he's wearing, it represents Solomon's kingdom uh, and um, uh, and you know, uh, people at this point might be thinking, this is a glorious kingdom. You know, this is a kingdom of gold and of wealth and of prosperity and of security. Uh, but this cloak is ripped up into 12 pieces. Uh, it's all going to come crashing down. Uh, ten of those pieces, ten tribes, northern tribes, will be given to Jeroboam. We'll see that in chapter 12. Uh, and he will rule over them as king. But two will remain. Verse 32. But for the sake of David, uh, sorry, of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped the Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept the degree, decrees and laws as David Solomon's father did. And so God, in the midst of this judgment of the crashing down of the kingdom, is going to keep Judah. Benjamin will, will join in as, as well. But remember, we've been using this kind of illustration of like an architect's model. This, an architect's model is, is like it's, it's pointing to something that is to come. It, it, it's, it's just a, a, a picture, an image of that which is in store. It's not meant to be the, the, the final thing. And, uh, and this, so this, this model, it, it fleshes out all God's plans and purposes that God will do through his son, uh, the greatest son of David, not Solomon. But at this point in the story, it's as though God, the architect, is, is reminding us of this model. It's pointing us to something that is to come. But at this point, to make sure we know that, that this model isn't the finished thing, he smashes it. He breaks it up and bins it. And the question we're asking is, well, in the process of doing this, is God ripping up his plans and promises too. Is the whole thing being written off? Is God going to start again? No. No, for the sake of my servant David. He, remember, he's, he's, he's repeating what he said back in verse 12, that for the sake of David, God is going to spare. He's going to keep his promises. God will judge Israel, but that judgment will be temp tempered with grace. For the sake of David, so God's judgment won't be total. It won't be complete. There will be a tribe, one that he will keep and will spare. Uh, and therefore, verse 39, his final words to Jeroboam, I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Not forever. You see, the, the God's grace will have the final word. God's promises will stand. Uh, God will keep his promises to bring a king for his people. You know, God's grace is, is good news for us, isn't it? Because uh, for those of us who have fickle hearts, 
those promises stand firm. The promises of the son of David, the one who would reign eternally for his people, those promises stand. And look at verse 36, this glorious little promise right there in the heart. He says, I will give one tribe uh, to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. And that promise has been kept alive to keep a light, uh, a light uh, for God's people in this dark world. The light of the world shining, bringing light and life uh, into our dark world. You see, Solomon's failure doesn't derail God's plan. That's the big point. I remember for first readers of, of 1 Kings, they're reading this uh, in exile uh, in Babylon or in Jerusalem and they, uh, they look around at the city and it's been destroyed, that the temple has been razed to the ground. And, and, and people sit thinking, surely, surely we are a people under judgment. We are a people for whom the Lord has abandoned. And yet this word is to them, isn't it? God's promises are sure. There will be a king that will come. God will restore his people. One greater than Solomon will do a work that Solomon couldn't do. A king who will follow the Lord completely and wholeheartedly. And his blessing will secure a people for himself forever. His obedience will bring this about And of course, we know that this King, Jesus, has come. We know him. We walk in his light. Uh, And as we do that, we we, we live in this age of fulfillment. Oh, praise God. Praise God. We are not saved by our love for God. We're not saved by our love for God. We're saved by his love for us. We're not kept by the strength of our obedience to the Lord No, we're kept by the strength and the constancy of his love and grace towards us. When we look inside our hearts, we we feel the words of that opening song, don't we? We sung, uh, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Because we are, aren't we? We feel that. Uh, we worship other gods again and again. We come to church and we, 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 we kind of praise God uh, and yet on Monday so easily we, we just getting on with life and our other ambitions and things. We know that waywardness but yet when we look inside ourselves that's not all we see, is it? It's not all that we see. No, you see, we're not defined by our desires We're defined by the God who has loved us and set his seal upon our hearts, who has given us a new heart and by his Spirit is at work in us to give us not just an undivided heart, but a brand new one. Yes, yes, sin still remains. We know that. But there is a new pressure, a new impetus uh, to keep us turning to God, to trust Him and to follow us, to follow Him uh, and to a, a great and glorious assurance that He keeps us. If you're a Christian here today, that's the work of God in you. So we needn't read Solomon as I'm prone to do and I just think, well, I, that's, I'm just bound to do the same. I'm bound to just wreck it, mess up, 
just become faithless and, uh, and, and compromised as Solomon was because his story isn't mine. It's not inevitable. Praise God. He's at work in us, changing us, renewing us, strengthening us day by day that as we go through the marathon of the Christian life until the day he calls us home, he is at work in us. I want to end with just uh, glorious words from 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul reminds uh, the church in Corinth these words. He says, he will keep you strong to the end. In case you just switched off, I'm going to say that again. (laughs) He will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the promise we can hold on to because King Jesus, the promised son of David, has done this great and glorious work. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we pray for wisdom Wisdom to heed your warnings to us in the life of Solomon. Please help us to know when our hearts are turning away. Please give us grace to repent and come back. We thank you for your promises to us now in Christ. We thank you for new hearts. We thank you for your spirit. And so we pray that for each of us, whatever circumstances we're facing, whatever temptations are before us, Father, we uh, pray that you would keep us strong to the end for your name's sake. Amen.